This audio file is part of the Libri Ideas Library and podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family and colleagues, but we ask you to respect the copyright which belongs to Libri Fellowship. Please don't modify this file in any way or publish the material in any format. Also note that the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So, um, yeah, why don't I pray just before we start and um, those of you who who uh, would like to join with me, let's, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we, yeah, we do thank you for being able to gather uh, freely as we are tonight in this place. Um, just time to think, time to ponder and wonder, time for our imagination to be um, baptized, as C.S. Lewis put it. Um, and we pray that, Lord, your spirit would be amongst us doing that and uh, really bringing us great joy, we pray. Amen. Okay, so tonight, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about imagining the new creation and um, the importance of art and literature for desiring God's good future. So um, we're going to think about, uh, yeah, I'm going to read and look at some look at some art, and I'm going to read some excerpts from books that hopefully will help us imagine uh, the f- good future that, that God has promised. But I want to start in, in a little bit of a different place. And um, I want to start with an observation by the Canadian Catholic Father Charles Taylor uh, from his 2007 book, A Secular Age. And in that book, he examines what it means to live in, I guess, what you could our contemporary culture, which he calls a secular age. And one of, one of the features that he picks out is what he calls the imminent frame, the imminent frame. And it's, he, he uses that word frame because it's something that encloses and focuses our view of life. And the word imminent means really that, that it's the here and now. So the, the, the frame that we have in our lives, he says, is just the here and now. And he calls it, as he says, it's a natural order as opposed to a supernatural one, um, an imminent world as opposed to a transcendent one. So the word transcendent is to do with, you know, a, a world that's above and beyond this world. But he says the world as we see it today is very much just the here and now. And he writes about how all meaning and significance is found in the imminent, in the here and now. And there's no other frame of reference. Now, we all, we all live in this frame, whether we're Christian or not Christian, or whatever religious background or, or, or no religious background we come from, we all live in this frame today. I would say it's a, it's a global frame, f- frame, and it's reflected to us through media, advertising, TV, novels, education, the values that we see reflected through those things, that all meaning and significance has to be in the here and now. And you don't need to think about it that hard to see that really this is in quite clear contrast with the Christian gospel in which there is meaning outside of the here and now. There is meaning outside of ourselves. There is God and it is world and he has put his meaning into it. It's full of his meaning. And also in the Christian gospel, there is a future that God will bring about, and that gives meaning to life now. 
So all the meaning is not just in the imminent. I'm not going to say it's not in the imminent, but it's not just there. There is also a meaning in a sense to come or, or we will see the meaning only in the future. But as I said, this imminent frame is the frame that Christians live in too. And I, I think it really affects Christians just as much as it does the rest of our culture. Um, so that I find myself as well with this view that all the benefits of being a Christian must be in the here and now, must be in this, in this, in this life alone. So perhaps that's one of the reasons why often uh, modern Christianity is reduced to, to therapy. Something like become a Christian and you'll be a happier you and your, all your problems will be solved. So that would be an appeal just to the, the here and now. Maybe it's why also the present generation Christians, I include myself, I, I think I find the idea of living sacrificially as, as being a difficult idea and a not very persuasive one. Because when you think about it, to sacrifice something in the here and now requires more than just the imminent frame. If there's only just the here and now, why would you ever sacrifice anything? You'd only do that if there is something better to come. So that's the imminent frame. But you might also see this focus on the imminent frame as being a kind of pendulum swing away from a Christianity in the past. Um, so... Um, some, you know, you could critique populations of Christians of being so future-focused that they denied the goodness of this world and the world around us. And this was indeed Marx's famous, Karl Marx's famous criticism of Christianity. He said, religion is the opium of the people. And by, by that, I think he meant that the promise of a future heaven was like a sort of, like a drug, like opium that, that stupefied and dulled people and made them passive in the face of, of the imminent world because they were promised a good future. So my, my question really I want to, um, us to explore is really how can we recapture a desire and a longing for God's good future? So how can we move beyond the imminent frame, but also one which doesn't disengage us from the here and now? So that Marx's criticism would be true of us, that we're, we're you know, so heavenly minded, some people, that we're no earthly good, no earthly use. So what I want to do is think about how we can recapture a desire, a longing for God's good future, but one that doesn't disengage us from the here and now. And that's really the kind of dilemma that I had personally and led, led to me writing this book. I'll show you my beautiful bookmark made by Tamsin, <laughs> who's in the audience, <laughs> which she gave me. Lovely bookmark goes in my book. So I'll just read you a little bit from the beginning of the book. And, and just to give you a flavor of what um, the dilemma, this kind of dilemma that I found myself in as a, as a fairly new Christian. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> Uh, this is an experience that, that I had on when I was a medical student. So I was a Christian and I was going to heaven. The only problem was I didn't want to go there. This sudden realization came to me as I was waiting to take off on a flight from London to Warsaw. I don't like flying. It, I would be fine if I was flying the plane, but trusting my life to someone else I don't know is another matter. 
So I was sitting there imagining the plane crashing, contemplating death and what comes after, when I suddenly realized that I didn't really want to go to heaven. I love this life. I love the feeling of sun on my face, the taste of olives on my tongue, the comfort. Some people don't like olives, do they, very much? I know that, that doesn't work for a lot of people, but it works for me. Anyway, the comfort of a hug, the smell of freshly washed linen. I loved walking in the English countryside and the colors of spring. I loved jumping into a swimming pool on a hot day and feeling the cold water make my skin tingle. Nothing about heaven or the images of heaven I had been given excited me. Being a disembodied spirit living forever in an amorphous, shapeless future just didn't have any appeal. Floating on clouds, singing praise and worship choruses for eternity just didn't attract me. Yet this all felt so wrong. Surely, as the greatest joy and fulfillment of the Christian life, I should want to go to heaven. So that was the... the um, sort of dilemma I found myself in and that led to actually praying a prayer that, that I would really desire heaven. And the answer to that is, is really is the writing of, of, of uh, that book. But uh, there's two things that were happening there. First was a failure of desire. I didn't really desire God's good future. But behind that actually was a failure of imagination that my images or ideas of heaven were so anemic and abstract and unattractive, and they were inaccessible to my embodied self, my earthly embodied self. They generated very little desire within me. Um, the, the kind of images I had, and I must say, you know, having gone to church for a few years after becoming a Christian, it didn't help me very much either. But the images I had were ones that, that I was given on them, um, you know, family holidays in, in Italy, being dragged around medieval cathedrals and looking up at the, at the domes of those cathedrals. I'll show you one here. Oops, sorry. Show you one that went past a lot. There we go. Sorry, here's one. Um, this, this is um, the underside of the Duomo in the, Florence in uh, in the cathedral in Florence. It's, it's um, painted by uh, Giorgio Vasari. Uh, took him seven years to paint, 1572 to 79. You can appreciate why it took him so long. <laughs> it's very high up. Um, and really, it depicts the entire cosmos. Actually, if you keep it, but it depicts heaven as you go up. And then actually, the lower reaches are, are people being cast down into hell. It's called the Last Judgment. Um, in the top of it is actually a lantern, which is like a, yeah, like a glass light so that it's filled with light right at the top, a kind of, but, but it's an inaccessible light that's far, far away from you. And actually your experience is you're down in the darkness of, of this massive cathedral and above you all this is happening. Um, and uh, so these, this, is, this I call pink sort of, here's, here's another one, whoops, no, here's another one. This is um, in the Palmer Cathedral. It's the Assumption of the Virgin by Correggio, 1526 to 30. Um, and um, you can see, I once asked people, you know, what, what image as well. You can ask me, I'll ask you, what, what you can tell me, what, what kind of, I don't know, what, what associations does this give you of heaven or what, what does this image tell you about heaven? You can just shout out things. 
Crowded. crowded. That's the first thing someone else said when I said it. It's very crowded, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a struggle to get there. It's a bit of a struggle to get there. That's interesting. Yeah, great. Thank you. There's a lot of flesh, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's a very fleshy place in one sense. A lot of fluffy clouds. That's the kind of art. Yes, a lot of pink fluffy clouds, yeah. Yeah, I call these pink fluffy clouds with fat babies with wings, uh, is my summary of it. And the, these are the fat babies with wings. Um, they're actually called Pooty, is the official art history name. I call them fat babies with wings. <laughs> and... Um, it's, it's interesting that they populate heaven. Um, they're actually a confusion in ways of, of um, Cupid with angels, and, and, they, and they get to be called cherubs, but actually from the word cherubim, which is in the Bible. But a cherubim probably looked more like this, actually. That's, this is from um, um, the, one of the Assyrian palaces um, in the British Museum about uh, eight, eight, 800s BC, but that's probably what a cherubim was, such as the cherubim that guarded the way back into the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had rebelled. They guard, guarded the, the way into the temples. Um, they weren't these, but, um, but these are, it's interesting that these populate the kind of Baroque heaven. And I think this is what informed sort of my views of heaven, that it was, it was a disembodied, um, cloudy, you know, angels with harps and wings and, and all those kinds of things. A very distant heaven. So that when you look at these, I mean, it is a ma they are magnificent, you know, these are magnificent paintings and architectural structures. But it's very much, as you said, you know, heaven is very much up there and you're down here. It has broken the imminent frame. But the question they left we, me with is how does, what does heaven have to do with the earth? You know, it's so far away. What does it actually have to do with the earth? It, it seems, you know, they seem such separate things. Um, and indeed, you know, it also seems like in order to be in heaven, you have to leave earth. That's very much the idea. You have to go up and leave the earth behind in order to be spiritual and be in heaven. Um, and this left me with another question as well, which I, I try to think about in the book is, what will we be doing in heaven for eternity, you know, um, will we just be floating around on the clouds or playing harps? And in church, all I was told is we'll be worshiping God, which made me sound, you know, made me just think I'll be in an eternal church service, which didn't sound to me like something I wanted to do for eternity. Um, especially since I, I, I can't sing very well. I love listening to music, but I can't sing very well. But it's interesting how all these images tend to get into popular culture as well. Uh, I love this scene from Scrat, the Ice Age, the Meltdown, uh, Ice Age, the Meltdown, sorry, from Ice Age, the Meltdown, where Scrat, who's the saber-toothed squirrel, I don't know if you remember, it goes up to heaven and it's just full of these, you know, it's pink fluffy clouds, but full of, full of acorns, which is his heart's <laughs> desire. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't get to... Um, get the, this kind of huge acorn he sees. He gets resuscitated on earth and by Sid, has to go back again. But the Simpsons have many scenes of um, going to heaven and hell, as we'll see in a bit. Um, I came across this artist, thanks to Sally Phoenix, who sent me this. This is called All Dogs Go to Heaven. <laughs> um, and apparently, I think you can have your pet dog painted into, the, into one of these scenes. And um, this next one is by Thomas Kincaid, 
much loved or much derided Christian artist of the 20th century um, and called, called Stairway to Paradise. I think what you see all these images give you is, is actually a similar kind of view that you have to go up in order to get to heaven. Um, it's, it's a movement away from the earth um, and up into a cloudy sort of ethereal place. So what these images, I think, did for me as a fairly new Christian um, was it really reinforced the implausibility of heaven, the undesirability of heaven, and even the unimaginability of heaven in terms of how could I really make a connection with this future, with this, um, this beyond, uh, as all I knew of life, as I said, was you know, to be embodied. I loved eating olives. I loved you know, the feeling, the cold water on, on my skin on a hot day. I knew what it was to be embodied, but what was it like to be a soul without a body in this kind of future? So what I want to do in the rest of the lecture, if you, like me, maybe have trouble imagining something that is desirable, because, I mean, it really ne needs to be, in a sense, desirable. Um, uh, in all, and, uh, yeah, to, to be... In, yeah, because God does talk about reward, so um, a future reward. So I want us to try, I want to use art and literature to imagine um, God's good future so that we could better desire it really in the here and now. Now, I might, I'll just say a quick word about the imagination. Some, some people here might find it um, an unusual word and feel a little bit uncomfortable with imagining something, imagining heaven, imagining God's good future. But imagination, as I've said, is key to the desire, to desire. And C.S. Lewis, in his uh, very famous essay, The Weight of Glory, points out actually that the gospel contains, he says, unblushing promises of reward. And Lewis says, it's not that our desires are too strong. That's often what Christian moralists might say, that desire can only lead you into sin. But Lewis says, no, it's not that our desires are too strong, it's actually that they're too weak. And then he has this very famous um, um, sentence or paragraph where he says, we are like an ignorant child content to make mud pies because we cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. So we're like an ignorant child content to make mud pies, so content to just with, with the imminent alone, because we can't imagine anything more. And it's notable he uses the word imagine there. Um, so in the terms I used earlier, you could say, to change what Lewis's terms, you could say, we're far too content with the imminent frame because we have failed to imagine what is meant by eternity. Francis Schaeffer, in, um, he's there and he's not... Uh, sorry, um, yeah, he's there and he's not silent, said this, the Christian should be the person who is alive, whose imagination absolutely boils over, which moves, which produces something a bit different from God's world because God made us to be creative. So God in his revelation has spoken about the real and true things beyond the imminent frame, but he's also given us a gift of imagination, so we might desire these things. And if you want to read more about imagination, I would really heartily recommend these two books, Malcolm Geith's Lifting the Veil 
and Tolkien's On Fairy Stories, his essay on fairy stories. These two things would really help you to, um, to think about how the imagination functions in, in a really positive way to excite our true desires. T.S. Eliot, the poet T.S. Eliot wrote, art serves us best precisely at that point where it can shift our sense of what is possible, show us more than we knew before. So we feel we have, by some manner of a leap, encountered truth. So, so T.S. Eliot is there, is talking about art and the imagination, actually as enabling us to encounter truth. And that's just what Malcolm Geith says in this book, is, is um, actually, well, he, yeah, he sees the imagination, and I think it's actually Lewis who says that, as an organ of meaning, that it actually helps us understand the meaning of, of things. So having thought about the imagination, the importance of imagination exciting our desire, I, I want to think what it is we are imagining. So it's important to think what actually is God's good future? What actually does he promise us? Now, it's very common amongst Christians to call the future that God promises us heaven. And um, we saw this in a sense in the focus of much of that historic art we looked at, the, the, the Duomos. But you also see it in contemporary art. This is, this is um, an artist called Akian Kramerik, who actually had visions of heaven as, as a teenage girl. And I guess they're pretty teenage girl visions of heaven, really, aren't they? With winged horses, unicorns and, and such like. Um, but it is this, it's, it's another place that she's imagining. And often when we talk about heaven, we imagine the celestial city or the new Jerusalem as this artwork is depicting. But what I explore in the book is actually this is a great misunderstanding of God's good future for planet Earth. Because the Bible story, when you think about the story of the Bible going from Genesis to Revelation, it's not actually a movement from Earth to heaven, but the Bible story moves from creation to new creation. So the Bible doesn't end with the destruction of the earth and an escape of our souls into heaven, but it ends with this, John's vision in Revelation 21, which is actually a marriage of heaven and earth. So he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So John has this vision of, of not, not the escape from the earth to heaven, but of actually heaven coming down to be on earth. And you think of also, this is what Jesus says in his ministry. Jesus doesn't say, repent, for then your soul can escape to heaven. But he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near on earth. So in my book, what I, what I do is, is, is think in a sense of, of heaven as being not a place, but a dimension where, where God's will is done. It's a dimension of reality. And what God is doing is bringing the dimensions of heaven and earth together. So the story of the Bible actually is, yeah, is about how, in, fact, in the Garden of Eden, the beginning of the Bible, 
heaven and earth are together in the Garden of Eden. Then when Adam and Eve rebel against God, heaven and earth are split apart. That's the, the angel, the cherubim with the flashing sword. There's no way back into the garden, this heavenly place. But then the story of the Bible is what God is doing is bringing heaven and earth together again. And to do that, he opens doors, but not so people can escape to heaven, but so that the power of heaven can come to transform the earth. And one of those um, that we might think about is Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder, is it's a wonderful story in Genesis where Uh, Jacob is on the run. He's swindled his brother out of his inheritance and he's on the run and he's alone in the wilderness and he puts his head on a rock and falls asleep. And then he has a dream. And Led Zeppelin made a fantastic, wonderful song about this dream called Stairway to Heaven, 1971. And it is is one of the best sort of um, rock anthems or rock songs ever. But actually, in a way they actually got it wrong because this is not a stairway to heaven, but it is a stairway from heaven. That, that's actually the really important thing because at the end of the dream, Jacob wakes from his sleep. He thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I'm not aware of it. He didn't say, surely this is a stairway. I can escape this horrible earth up to heaven. Actually, it's where God comes down to be with him and to change his heart so that he could be a he could be a, a doorway as well of heaven coming to earth. And I, I came across this this uh, I think this really wonderful um, artwork actually on the. You might want to I don't know if you can can you switch the lights off at the back maybe you can do that a bit yeah it's a little bit dark um, there great that's much better isn't it we can be in the dark that's good. Um, this, this is by Anna Freeman Bentley, 2011. It was actually, did anyone see it? It was in Chichester Cathedral. Anybody see it? I'd love to have seen it there. Um, it's made of eight oil panels supported by scaffolding, 11 meters high. And um, in it, she, she says this about, about this. She says, um, dissent questions whether the central image of Genesis 28 is best conceived as a stairway to heaven. The ladder is let down into Jacob's physical and moral wilderness. Rather than depending on the shaky foundations of Jacob's past actions and current circumstances, affirmation and encouragement are anchored in the Lord who stood above it. This is a stairway from heaven. So it's, 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 I love the way she's captured that sense. This is a stairway from heaven. And actually, she's titled this work Descent. And that's what you see in, in, in the scriptures all the way through. The movement is never, never from earth to heaven. It's actually God coming from heaven to be on earth. That, that's what the tabernacle and the temple was. And of course, the ultimate um, example of this is the incarnation. This is, this is Rembrandt's um, uh, the Adoration of the Shepherds, uh, which is in the National Gallery and really worth seeing. It's not very big, actually, which is why it doesn't blow up brilliantly. But what you see wonderfully is, is that the, the light, if you look at the picture, the light, where's the light coming from? The baby. The baby, yeah. It's the light is out, you know, into the world from this baby who is the doorway between heaven and earth because he is the heavenly man, as Paul calls him. He is fully God and fully human. And even after 
Jesus' death and resurrection ascension, we see this same pattern because when Jesus ascends to heaven, the angels that are there um, and they, the angels that the disciples see after Jesus ascended into heaven, they don't say, you will go into heaven like him. They say, this same way he has gone, he will come back. So their message again is about the return to earth. And then Jesus sends his Holy Spirit or gives his Holy Spirit that comes from heaven to earth. So, so the biblical story is, is not about heaven and earth being separated, but about God bringing them together and making the earth a heavenly place. And this union of heaven and earth, though, and this is what, what I want to say where the second part of it is to think about it's not just something that is in the future, but it's also a present reality. So in the Lord's Prayer, you might not have really thought about it, but when you pray this part of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So really what this is a prayer is for the coming of the kingdom of God into the imminent frame. That's what you're praying when you pray this. You're praying for heaven to break into the imminent frame of the earth. And this is the mission of Christians. Uh, in the last chapter of my book, I, I talk about what this means in more practical ways. But it's the mission of Christians is to actually, when you become a Christian, then the Holy Spirit comes from heaven to live in you. And you then become a doorway between heaven and earth. The doorway through which the power of heaven can come to heal the earth around you. So that's the mission of the Christian and the church. So, so what I, I want to say is, as we now look at some more art is that really what our imagination is going to help us desire is not a far off distant immaterial future heaven where we are sort of souls floating on clouds, but rather to desire to see the new creation, to see heaven breaking through into the world around us, into the imminent frame around us. So what we're looking for is rumours of another country beyond the imminent frame, of a bigger story that gives um, shape to this mortal coil, what it might look like for the temporal and the imminent to be clothed with the glory of the eternal. Tolkien, in his essay on fairy stories, puts it like this. He says... A piercing glimpse of joy, of heart's desire, that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of story and lets a gleam come through. So that's Tolkien saying, you know, if, if that's what fairy stories do, actually. He says in their best way, they, let, they open up and says a hole in the imminent frame and let a gleam of, 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 um, yeah, of, of God's good future come through. One, one of the books that I, I found really helpful in, um, as, well, it may be a byproduct of it in some senses, but in helping imagining what this is like is Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Um, I don't know if some of you will, will know her. She, she um, has written a whole series of books, really interesting characters and events, but from different perspectives. Um, and um, and she, she's a Christian and she teaches um, creative writing. But in, in Gilead, it's, 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 um, 
the story of Reverend John Ames, and he's coming to the end of his life. He's an old man, but it, he got married, remarried very late on, or married, yeah, remarried, I think, late on, and has, a, has a, a small young son, and he's writing letters to his son that, um, you know, will survive his death so his son can read them. So they're just a series of letters in the book. But, but one time when he's talking um, about, in a sense, yeah, this, this, this breaking in of or imagining, because he's coming to the end of his life, he's thinking about what lies beyond. He says, imagine the possibility of an existence beyond this one, by which I mean a reality embracing this one, but exceeding it the way this world embraces and exceeds Sophie's understanding of it. Sophie is their cat. <laughs> so, you know, he says a cat, obviously, has a limited understanding, and so do we as human beings. But it, what, what we imagine is a world, I love those two words, embracing but exceeding. That's really wonderful, isn't it? Something that embraces this world but is more than it. And art and literature is, is a wonderful doorway through which this gleam that can embrace and yet exceed, it can break through. Um, In Every Moment Holy, written by Doug McElvey, it's a series of liturgies. Well, I love this um, liturgy. This is, this is a liturgy for an artist before taking the stage. And it has this same sense. Let my brief service be like the opening of a window through which the breezes of a far country might blow, stirring eternal longings to life. So, so that's a prayer that, as art, it might be this, this um, doorway through which something can come into the imminent frame. I'm going to sh share here some photographs as well, um, taken by a friend of mine, Kurt Simonson, uh, who was uh, formerly the professor of photography at Biola. And um, this is a series of photographs he calls A Thin Silence. And I'll just read you, I'll show you them and I'll read you a little bit what, what he wrote about these. Um, but you might recognize some of the places. Some of them are in the manor house, but I'll, I'll just show you. And some of them are taken at the Swedish Libri. There is a story in the Hebrew scriptures about expecting God to be revealed in a dramatic gesture like an earthquake or a fire, but instead finding that God reveals himself in a low whisper, in a thin silence. This is the lesson of Labrie. Those of us who come here might be hoping for a grand revelation about modern life or redemption from personal demons. But instead, we find God in the beauty of the little things like chores, shared meals, and even the movement of light across a table. You can recognize the, um, the bathroom on the middle floor. This is in our, from our chapel. So 
what Kurt does is he captures, you know, everyday objects or in the sense of everyday person, normal person. But I love the way, you know, and they're even broken objects and broken people. And, um, you know, the, the, the leftovers from the breakfast at the Swedish Labrie. But something is, is shining through. And um, I call this embracing yet exceeding, actually transfiguration. That's what you might say, that the, the visible is transfigured by what is normally not visible. A gleam breaks through. Um, in, in, where have I put my book? Here we go. In my book, I, I talk a little bit about it like this, thinking about Jesus's transfiguration. The transfiguration Jesus wasn't less material or more ethereal than the earthly Jesus. So, so, sorry, just to back up a bit, if you don't, Jesus's transfiguration, there's a moment in the Gospels where um, Jesus takes three of his disciples up a mountain and then they suddenly see him um, yeah, transfigured. Um, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light, Matthew writes. Um, so the transfigured Jesus wasn't less material or more ethereal than the earthly Jesus. The transfigured Jesus wasn't a spiritual ideal of a soul released from the confines of matter to become pure spirit. Rather, the reverse. The transfigured Jesus was more real, more solid, a stunningly more complete reality than the Jesus they lived with every day. The disciples witnessed a whole other dimension to Jesus that they had not been able to see clearly before. This dimension did not obliterate the earthly Jesus, but added to and completed his earthly reality. So I, th I think that's, that's what we're looking for, um, a transfiguration. Um, and this transfiguration event shows us as well that, that again, God's plan for his creation is, is, to, is not to obliterate the earthly with the heavenly, but to bring them together in a new creation. Um, and in Gilead, the Reverend Ames talks about this in one of his letters to his son. And I'll just read that to you. This is from Marilyn Robinson's Gilead again. And he's reflecting on some sermons that he's written. I think he, he goes up to the attic and finds some old sermons. It has seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor grey ember of creation and it turns to radiance. For a moment, a year or the span of a life, and then it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know it had anything to do with fire or light. That is what I said in the Pentecost sermon. I have reflected on that sermon and there is some truth in it. But the Lord is more constant and far more extravagant than it seems to imply. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Only who can have the courage to see it? So that's from, again, from Marion Robinson's Gilead. So... Um, I think it is the artist that has the courage to see often and, um, and then to try to show us this, this transfiguration, this breaking through. And another writer that I've really enjoyed in the last few years reading um, her books is Elizabeth Googe, um, 1900 to 1984. Um, 
and she she was um, her, the daughter of a principal of, of a theological college and a dean of um, cathedrals. And she wrote books like The Little White Horse. Do you know that one, children's book? Yeah, J.K. Rowling says that's her favorite children's book and inspired some things in Harry Potter. Um, and then there's this one called The Scent of Water, 1963. And I'll just read you a little bit because this is, I love this bit as, as a kind of, a transfiguration, transfiguration experience. And she's talking about um, he, an elderly curate who comes to see her mother, um, the main character, Mary, her mother, um, one afternoon. And the mother just thinks this guy is just ridiculous and, you know, so old and sort of fuddy-duddy and, and um, seems to be, um, yeah, not very, not very um, sort of grounded. But anyway, Mary then sees this, she has this experience and she talks about, She's, she's with him in the garden with this curate. And she says, And then suddenly he caught sight of a tortoiseshell butterfly drifting down the path, and he gave an exclamation of incredulous joy and ran after it. When I caught up with him, he was standing in front of the Budlea tree, which was covered with butterflies like it nearly always is, and he was speechless with wonder. His face absorbed as a child's when the candles had been lit on the Christmas tree. It was almost as though the butterflies shone on him and lit his face. Remember the, the Rembrandt? Or else it was the other way round. For a moment there seemed light everywhere, though it was a grey day. It was queer and I didn't want to move until there was a sound of voices and we saw Mother and her guests coming out into the garden. So that's um, a transfiguration experience and there's, there's many of those in her novels. Um, now, this idea of transfiguration shows the problem with much of the art depicting heaven that we looked at previously, such as the Duomo in Florence or the contemporary art of the New Jerusalem. It exceeds the earth, but it doesn't embrace it. It's so disembodied and transcendent, it's hard for us to imagine ourselves in it. After all, we are embodied beings created by God to live in this world. So if we cannot imagine it, we cannot desire it, as C.S. Lewis says in his essay, The Way to Glory. I would say, furthermore, these visions of a purely transcendent future are not biblical. So they probably owe more to what's called Neoplatonic philosophy and its influence on Christianity than it does at all to the Bible. So the, the, Neo, the Neoplatonic philosophers, this was the greatest of them, Plotinus, and his dates there. His disciple Porphyry said, Plotinus, the philosopher of our time, seemed ashamed of being in a body. And the Platonic philosophy was all about a, a spirit-matter dualism. So, so a sort of opposition and conflict between disembodied or yeah, non-material spirit and the world of matter. And the purpose or the spiritual path was to escape the world of matter into a sort of the heavenly realm of pure spirit. So the problem with this, though, obviously, is it makes our life now, in one sense, and the future entirely disconnected. And um, I think that we see that in much of the art. Um, as, as you said, it, you know, when you look at those pictures of heaven, it looks like, wow, you know, um, almost an impossible place to get to. And certainly it's not coming down. I have to go up. Now, the, the classic medieval, in one sense, exposition 
um, of heaven is found in Dante's Divine Comedy. And you can see the dates there, 1308 to 1320 is when he wrote the Divine Comedy. Um, it's, it's not a bundle of laughs. It's, it's, it's called a comedy like Shakespeare's comedy because it has a happy ending because he gets to the highest heaven. Um, it's an epic poem um, in which Dante travels through the nine circles of hell and then the nine layers of purgatory and then, and then the nine um, circles of heaven up to the highest heaven, the Empyrean, it's called. Um, it's an allegory. And it's, it has a lot of um, political and philosophical um, um, you know, sort of subtexts in it. It's, it's masterful poetry. It's, it's um, written, first piece written in the Italian vernacular and re really sort of founded the Italian language as it is. Um, and Dante's heaven is a majestic heaven full of wonder and beauty. And I know it's very dear to many people's hearts. Um, but one of the things is that really his vision of heaven, I would say, is a kind of Greek philosophical Aristotelian vision and not actually a Hebrew one. Um, and I'll just read you a tiny bit again when he gets to the highest heaven, the Empyrean. Um, this is in Canto 33 of heaven. Um, and um, uh, it says this, he, he's looking into this light and he says, in its depths I saw, packed tight, bound in one book of love, all that is sent abroad through the universe as leaves to out scattered, single, separate things and any kind of quality that cleaves to them and enters and whatever brings a partial framework to some area of all that multiplicity. But here in the highest heaven, all things and links that, were, that ever were and are were fused together so they might appear to me as one pure light. I know I saw the universal form of this intact complexity because my joy, the more I tell of it, expands to mark the act of speaking. So even though I didn't read it very well, in, you can see that it's beautiful poetry and, and wonderful in, in one way, but when you think about his vision of the highest heaven, it's really a philosophical vision that resolves a, a discussion that Aristotle started and then became prominent in the medieval church about the problem of the one and the many, the diversity. So he sees all these leaves of this book scattered everywhere, but actually finding their, all their, their kind of integrating point in, in God, in the highest heaven. Which, it, which is a wonderful truth, but it's, it's an interesting, yeah, I'll contrast it with the last piece of artwork I want to show you. Now, Dante's, um, Dante's um, work gave, gave rise to, um, I would say, the medieval imagination and then the later imagination of heaven and hell. And you might have seen these kind of things. This is actually in Salisbury in um, St. Thomas's Church in Salisbury, 1470, a doom painting of God's judgment and people being thrown into hell here and then going up to heaven. This is from um, Fra Angelico's The Last Judgment here, people being tortured in hell according to um, the different sins that they've committed in this life. Not biblical, but found in um, um, the Greek idea of Tartarus um, and in Dante's Inferno. Dante takes it that way. Um, this, e this kind of even finds its way into, into modern art. This is Gustave Doré's um, 19th century version of The Highest Heaven, and even into 
<laughs> popular culture. Um, a very funny episode of The Simpsons where um, um, Homer sells his soul for a donut <laughs> and then gets, goes to hell, hell where he gets tortured by f being force-fed donuts by this machine, as you can see going on. Only the only thing is he can continuously eat donuts and enjoy it, and in the end, the devil gives up trying to torture him. So, um, but you see how much like Dante has actually informed these kind of things, or the Greek vision. Okay. Um, so this these dualistic visions leads to this tension between a kind of this disembodied spiritual heaven um, and then kind of the visceral earthly passions. And this kind of dualism actually is something that then runs through art. So if, if you've ever come across William Blake, um, you know, poet, artist, uh, philosopher, he wrote this book called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. It's an interesting thing where he, he because what he, he thought was that heaven was like this sort of such an anemic, disembodied, sterile, passionless place. And hell seems to be the place where all the passions are you know, and, and um, all, all these desires. And, and so, you know, a, as a romantic artist, he, 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 you know, he wanted to be full of passion, full of desire. But, but somehow, you know, heaven was this, this kind of, yeah, as I said, this dispassionate place. So he wanted to marry them together. And that was his solution for the, this dualism of, of these, you know, the heaven and hell was to try and bring them together. And, and in part in response to this, um, uh, C.S. Lewis in 1946 wrote The Great Divorce which is really he's saying no heaven and hell can't be brought together they, there is you know they are separated there is a great divorce between heaven and hell but what Lewis wanted to argue is that desire and passion are not the possession of hell but the prerogative of heaven so in hell um, though these desires are turned inward upon the self, and in heaven the desires find their proper source in, in, in God. So um, in this story, um, heaven is not this place of, of, of kind of um, passionately seething sensuality, but actually it's a very dull, anemic, suburban grayscape. And the pa um, where the only passions in hell are suspicion, jealousy, and hatred. So that these citizens of hell, in his book, move further and further away from each other into the suburbs of this, this grey suburbs. So I think he goes to see Napoleon in the book. Is that right? He goes see, and he has to travel for weeks and months through empty suburbs to get to where Napoleon is marching around his, his own house, telling himself how wonderful he is. So that it's an anemic, whereas heaven is just full of sensuous beauty and, and wonder. And um, I'll just read you a tiny bit. If you haven't read The Great Divorce, you, you, sh you must do because it's wonderful. So um, he says, the light and coolness that drenched me were like those of summer morning, early morning, a minute or two before the sunrise, only that there was a certain difference. I had the sense of being in a larger place, perhaps even a larger sort of space than I'd ever known before, as if the sky were further off and the extent of the green plain wider that they could be on this little ball of earth. 
I had got out in some sense, which made the solar system itself seem an indoor affair. So it's wonderful. He sees, so he says, um, um, in, later on he says something, I've just slightly paraphrased it, but Lewis writes, the lusts of hell and this earth are poor, weak, whimpering, whispering things compared with that richness and energy of desire which leads us deeper into heaven. So he really sees, actually, it, the answer to, to this conundrum of the, of the Neoplatonists, if you like, separating sort of, you know, a dull heaven with a sensuous hell. He said, no, actually, it, it's, it's desire that leads us deeper into heaven. And, um, uh, of course, it's, you know, in one of his, I, I think, one of the greatest, um, you know, expositions of this is actually in his children's book, The Last Battle. And it's, it's a wonderful moment when, um, when, when the, the, the children and the characters come through, if you like, into the real Narnia at the end of the story. The, the kind of the old Narnia ends, but actually they find themselves in the real Narnia. But the Lord Diggory says this. He says, all of the old Narnia that mattered all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. So Lewis's real Narnia wasn't an ethereal cloudscape, but a more real place, a place where all that matters of this world is redeemed and restored. So um, this is, I think, what we need to be doing when we imagine the good, God's good future, is, in a way, is imagining if you like, this world, but more. And um, I'll read you again from Gilead. This is probably my favorite passage in Gilead, where um, the Reverend Ames goes to visit, visit Boughton or Borton, who is his old friend. He's also been a minister all his life. Um, they were in different denominations. They used to sit on their porches and, you know, discuss sort of theological issues into the night. And they've had this lifelong relationship, and they're both coming to the end of their lives. So Ames writes this. He says, Borton says he has more ideas about heaven every day. He says, mainly, I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by 10 or 12 if I had the energy. <laughs> but two is much more than sufficient for my purposes. So he's just sitting there, multiplying the feel of the wind by two, multiplying the smell of the grass by two. I love, I love that, as, um, imagining the new creation, uh, multiplying it by two. Um, okay, I'll, I'm going to yeah, finish. I just want to show you two works of art, but I, I just want to point out how... Um, um, you know, this idea of the continuity, I could say more about that if we want to talk more in the question and answer, but the continuity between this world and what is to come. Paul talks about that in the end of 1 Corinthians, having in this 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about um, the resurrected body and answers the Corinthians' questions about the resur resurrected body that we will have in the new creation. But then he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what he's saying is, is what we do in this life is not in vain. 
um, because there's a connection, a continuity of the now and the not yet. Okay, I won't talk about Leaf by Niggle by Tolkien, but if you ever want to read a story that helps you into that connection between the now and the not yet, wonderful story, Leaf by Niggle, Tolkien. Um, it's often in Tree and Leaf, isn't it? In a, in a collection called Tree and Leaf with, with on fairy stories. So I, I want to finish with just two works of art briefly just to show you. And then that I think for me really capture much of what I've talked about and take us to our final destination. And the first of them, actually, the first time I saw it was on the cover of your book, um, um, Philip, on um, animal ethics, which is, um, and we were talking about it last week, we couldn't remember <laughs> the person, is, is um, Edward Hicks. Um, and this is called A Peaceable Kingdom. He painted it in the sort of 1830s. He was a Quaker in um, Pennsylvania, but actually earned his living as a painter, I think mostly. And he painted this scene 62 times, I think different versions of it. It represents the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11, um, a, a vision of the new creation where the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and a little child will lead them. So it's the prophecy of a new creation, of creation made new. It's wonderful with all the animals there and all, the, 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 and all of nature there. Um, it's not the world destroyed, but the world made new um, by Christ. But there's also something very interesting because going on in this corner is there's a connection of the future present. And in this corner, you can see um, this is actually... Um, his depiction of a real meeting in 1681 between William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania, and the Lenape um, First Nations people of America. And they signed a treaty of perpetual friendship in that year. And so what he's getting at is that this future also, it comes into the present in the peaceable kingdom, comes into the present from the future into this treaty. The second work I want to show you is, I think, my kind of contrast to, or not my, but I, the contrast I'd like to give you, it's, it's actually Andre Rublev's um, icon. And I, it's, it's, it's a contrast to Dante's vision of the highest heaven. And I, I think this is, is the vision of the highest heaven. Um, it's, it's, it's a relational vision. And this um, 15th century icon by Andre Rublev. And it's often um, called the, the three angels because it's three angels that visit Abraham at Mamre in, in Genesis 18. But actually, it's very deliberately also painted by Rublev to be um, an icon of the Trinity. And the three angels, um, um, there, there's certain things about them which in, in Russian iconography, they represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And on the table is... Um, is um, a uh, calf's head and a cup, which is reminding of Jesus's sacrifice. But the, the beautiful thing about this icon is that as they sit around the table, the fourth side of the table is open to you, the looker, the, 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 yeah, um, the viewer. And so what Rublev does in this icon is he invites you to join the Trinity at the table through the blood and sacrifice of Christ. This is what Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1.4, where he says that we will participate in the divine nature. 
and the divine nature is love. So what we will participate in is, is love. And that's why I think this is the highest heaven, because it's the heart of heaven is being welcomed into the eternally loving relationship of the Trinity. And I'll just finish, I'll read just one paragraph, what will this be like um, from, from my book. It's hard to comprehend what this will be like, as the, but if, as the Apostle John tells us, God is love, then knowing God face to face is nothing less than being welcomed into the very heart of love itself. The love that the three persons of the Trinity have shared with one another from eternity to eternity. The love that overflowed in the creation of the universe. The love that is present in, in all the good things we have ever enjoyed. The love that is the source of all the love that we have experienced in our relationships on earth. The love that we begin to experience as we trust Jesus and his care for us. This is the never-ending joy that God offers us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Good. Okay, so thanks for listening. Sorry I've gone over a bit, but um, why don't we have, where's Joel? Shall I just say, do you want to, yeah, why don't we have a few minutes just to talk to your neighbour? Um, we'll have a Q&A, but maybe just a few minutes to digest. You might want to yeah, think about one of the works of art or pick up some questions or some Bible passages or whatever. So just talk to for a few minutes and then we'll have a Q&A. Great. There, uh, we often gather together uh, you know, two or three questions at a time and then Jim can, can respond uh, as we go. So what are some questions that, that popped up in your conversations? I have, I have one or two up my sleeve, but I'll try to open it up. Oh, lovely. That's good. You can. Um, yeah. The first is that you talked at the beginning of your lack of desire for yeah. heaven as being, or your lack, your lack of, your, your, your idea that heaven wasn't a very good yeah. place to be, was a lack of desire or failure to desire and a failure of imagination. imagination yeah. It seems to me that at the root of that, there is also a failure of theology. Yes. Taught yeah, yeah, yeah. Think of that. Yeah. Why do you think it is that so much of the church teaches so yeah. much that yeah. Which is clear yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Really not grasped at all. Yeah. And what, yeah. what is that? Second yes. point is yeah. you were talking about That's great moments question. Mm. in this world when you get these sorts of inclinations of mm. transcendence mm. like the butterfly mm. butterfly butterfly mm. butterfly mm. butterfly 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 there are fewer and fewer. Yeah. Very rarely see yeah. a party are now covered in butterflies. Yes, it's a good point. Yeah. Other things of that sort. Yeah. So, what are the implications of that if we, yeah. are, if we are, in a way, not only living conceptually within an imminent frame, but we are actually yeah. removing from people's experience yeah. um, the opportunity <coughs> to kind of get that sense of, mm. of, of transcendence and God's um, abundance? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, those are really good questions. Um, I might as well just, shall I just steal all this? They're really good questions. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's you're right. There is a, it's a failure of theology, isn't it? And actually, um, 
I've just been reading some books on a you know, Christian view of environmentalism or ecology. And, you know, the, those are some of the books that I see a clearest expression of what I've just talked about, because this is actually, the, you know, one of the strongest reasons to care for creation, because creation and new creation are, you know, in, in, intricately linked. And um, in fact, they overlap. And um, so I, yeah, so there is, and then why is, why, you ask, why is there a failure of theology? That is a wonderful question. Um, I mean, uh, as I said, this kind of, it's interesting, this, this dualism, I, I talk about it more in the book, a dualism between a kind of, you know, between spirit and matter. And so that, that's something the neo, well, the Gnostics had that, the Gnostic sects that, that in the letters in, in the New Testament, they're sort of talking about those kind of groups. And then later, the Neoplatonists, they actually had quite a profound influence on Christianity, the Neoplatonists. So, um, you know, Augustine, who was, you know, the, well, with Aquinas, one of, you know, the most important theologian of the medieval period, he was a Neoplatonist before he became a Christian. And although he left a lot of those beliefs behind, I, I think it, it, it's very hard to sort of leave all of them behind. So I think a lot of medieval Christianity had a kind of this, this dualistic overtone. And you can see that, for example, in sometimes in the ideas on celibacy, for example, that celibacy is a higher form of spirituality than, than being married because marriage is to do with sex, which is sensuous. And so to overcome that is a higher spirituality. So... Um, you know, so so some of the med. Who is it? One of um, Ambrose, I think it's Ambrose. Um, one of the early church fathers wrote about that that um, uh, that Adam and Eve only started to have sex once they'd fallen, for example. So that's a kind of dualistic. So and then in the you know, so it, it had a profound effect. Then it comes back in the um, in the um, Renaissance actually strongly um, that this Neoplatonic dualistic view. And I think actually the modern enlightenment is actually a dualism, but not of like, not of body and soul, but of body and mind today. So that we have, um, you know, we have the idea that we could, we could exist without bodies at some point in the future if we can encode our minds into a machine, which is a bit like a soul living forever, you know. So, and yeah, I don't know, it's always, I think it's, the other thing is, it's, it's always easiest for us to blame something. So in the dualistic worldview, you say, um, oh, you know, it's not really my fault, it's, it's just because I'm made of matter. You know, the, it's almost God's fault because he made the material world, you know. But actually the Bible's very clear that the material world is good and that the problem is the human heart. And I, you know, I, I think it's just, we don't like to admit that fact. It's better to blame something else. So those are some of the reasons. I don't know if anyone else has got other reasons why they think, you know, the kind of the dualistic worldview of the earth being destroyed and us all going up to immaterial heaven is so powerful. I don't know. Um, I think there's a, there's, you could almost say it's not only always bad theology, but partial theology, which is bad theology. Right. In the sense yeah. that there are like particular stories where you could say, well, you have Jesus's ascension. So it's not out of nowhere we get the idea that like... Right, yes. Yeah, 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 that's true. But even Jacob's Ladder. So you have these these moments in the Bible that maybe are taught about more and are kind of easier, but they aren't filled out actually by... 
yeah. the bigger picture. And, and yeah. Revelation does picture that, but it also has a lot of other confusing Yes, that, yeah, yeah. And it depends, yeah, I did talk about in the book, it depends on the lens you come with. You know, if you come with a kind of very dualistic lens, then you can interpret some things Paul says, like, you know, um, I can't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, as if Paul has this opposition of, you know, the spirit and the flesh or the spirit and the world. But so you have to understand that by flesh, he means something like, you know, the fallen creation, not, not material itself, because... As I said, it, you know, it's very clear in Genesis 1 that the material creation is good because it says it seven times, which is, um, you know, which is the, the number of completeness in the, in the Hebrew mind. So, yeah, so that's, I'm sure there's, there's other reasons too. But I, I, think it's, I think it's probably that main one, actually, that it's easier because easier for us to blame something else then, isn't it? And um, it's in, you know, some people comment on, that Gnosticism, that's this idea, is that there's something wrong in creation. And if, if we can just get rid of that, everything will be okay. Whereas actually what we have is there's something wrong with, my, with me. And I can't get rid of it, but Jesus can by, you know, um, um, in, in, his, in his death and resurrection. The, the, yeah, this, the other question, which was about, um, yeah, those moments. I think you're right, aren't you? If you... I mean, I was thinking if you live in a city as well, it can be very hard to, um, to, to see anything that's not man-made. But I, I would say even then, you know, the, I think the gleam breaks through, doesn't it, in many different ways. Um, but one of the key ways it breaks through, I would say, is when you encounter another human being. And that's why I, lo I love that photograph that Kurt took of one of the students on the stairwell. Um, and, um, you know, somehow when you look at that, that, that picture, oh, can I put it back up? Yeah. Um, you just see the glory of a human being, you know, you can, yeah, you, you see the glory of a human being and almost something beyond, isn't there, that comes through as well. And so I think that, you know, that because we are made in the image of God, that's one of the key ways that it shines through even you know, when we can't see it in nature. But, um, yeah, I do think nature is a wonderful way, isn't it? Or, well, we should call it creation, maybe. Of, Yeah. Did you have any thoughts, other thoughts on that? Or why it's so um, difficult or other ways? Or? Not, not particularly, but it just seems to me that that, that that latter point about what we're doing to, to creation should be um, <coughs> a motivation for Christians to get engaged. Yes. Ecological yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. Kind of yeah. I thought though about some of the, some of these images that mm. you showed. We recently went to. Uh, we had a, a good friend, a Christian friend, who was uh, who died recently, mm. and we mm. went to her um, service celebrating her life. And all around the church were these wonderful paintings that she had done, which were paintings of sort of hidden aspects of, of creation. So sort mm. of little corners of a garden where there were brambles growing mm. and things like that. Mm. And they were just really, really yeah. um, striking mm. uh, this sense of, of God's presence in these mm. ordinary, everyday things that you could see mm. if you were just on a country walk or, or yeah. picking a garden or something. Yeah. Um, very, very powerful. And I think yeah. that they sort of captured something of what you've been talking yes. about. Yes, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, it can also come through really good, you know, good TV series and films, can't they? Um, I know once in the film festival we watched an episode of Breaking Bad, 
the one with the fly. Have you, do you know that one where the fly is inside the, where they're making the drugs? But it's an incredible, you know, piece of, of cinema where, you know, something breaks through into their kind of reality. And um, I think we do, yeah, so there is, I mean, I like the way in that, in that the thing I read from um, uh, Marilyn Robinson where actually the, Ames says, the Reverend Ames says, you know, God is much more, what does he say, something, you know, generous and than we give him credit for in terms of these things that break through. He's kind of knocking on our door much more often than we think. Um, yeah, great. I think, yeah, let's... Garrett. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that would have that this would imply some practical consequences for us. As, yes. Um, that we need if to you're a Christian. In yeah. Climate, yeah. climate activism. Um, do you, how would you describe our role in that? Because yeah. I personally seen in that, that way. Okay, yeah. Like have a, like if, even if this world, in, in my view, until now, were to be destroyed by us in some way, yeah. God would make a new earth. Yeah, yeah, right. or would renew it, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that's right, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's into the, I mean, the Greek word for a new heaven and a new earth is not, is not the word that's used for a brand new something, but it's actually the, the word that's used for making something new again. Or so more like if you were going to decorate your house and you said I'm, it's a new house, it would be like that rather than demolishing it and rebuilding a brand new house. But I, the way I, t I think about it in the book, there's a, there's a great, it's a really good question. And, and the way I think about it in the book is that, um, is that so, what I talk in the book is about these doorways that God opens between, between heaven and earth and then Christ being the, you know, the, the sort of final doorway. But that actually when you become a Christian, then you, you become a doorway between heaven and earth. So the Holy Spirit comes from heaven to live in you and you become a doorway, a place where God is present on earth. That's why Paul calls when you become a Christian, he says you're a temple because that was where God was present on earth. And he says it to you individually and to people together as a church. And so the way I think about it is that what God is doing is, is he is bringing heaven to earth. And when then when you become a Christian, um, what you do is you participate in what he's doing. And I use the word participate quite carefully because I think sometimes Christians have had the idea that they're building the kingdom of heaven themselves. And then that becomes abusive and violent. But actually, you have to say, what I need to do is be participating in what God is doing. And then I say, like, actually, what you need to do is participate in what he's doing in your square inch or if you're European square centimeter of the earth. Do you see what I mean? Because you, you, you can't do everything and save everything or, or be a, and that's impossible. But you can participate in what God is doing in your local 
area. And also I look at how that can involve like, you know, the things we're interested in. So for example, you know, some, some people may have a, a really particular calling to, um, to the environment. And that may be, you know, um, really the way that, you know, their energies go. And somebody else, it may be, you know, a, um, a particular calling in, into music. And I'm not saying that, you know, they shouldn't then have a concern for the environment or vice versa. The person in the environment shouldn't have a concern for music. But, but I think God, you know, uses who we are as people and the things that we love and the things that we're interested in and the, um, and the skills and the experiences, you know, that we have so that together we can all, you know, we can all play a different part, but it's, uh, you know, uh, like a as, as Jesus says, you know, like a body, we're all different parts of a body. Um, and so one of the things that I think as we begin that is, is it should just begin with prayer and praying that God would open our eyes to how our square inch of the earth could be transformed by the power of heaven. And if we could be a doorway through which a gleam can come through what that might look like. Does that help? Is that kind of what you were thinking about? Yeah, or not? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, you can come back. We'll take, I'll come back to you if there isn't another question. Or, you know, but that's, that's the idea. So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of thinking about the last chapter. It's called An Earth Dweller's Guide to Participating in Heaven on Earth. So you kind of, yeah, we're here living on Earth, but we can participate in Heaven now already. Great, I'll say, yeah, yeah, Peter. Yeah, Thanks. my question. Yeah. Really about the yes. Yeah. Um, we, we have the creation story. And yes. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, I'd how does that work? Say, yeah. Well, I believe in caring for God's creation. Yeah. I don't agree with the climate change agenda. Anymore. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll just talk about that a bit. Yeah. It is a city, but as as most people point out, it's a it's a garden city. So, um when you look at when you look at um as you go on into into Revelation 22, you see, you know, the the, the river of life flows out of the city and it has um and the tree of life spans the river and then the the the, the 12 trees, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. And it's, it's interesting that the reason it's a city, right, is because you could say, like, you know, you could have a story, which some people have a story, which is we start a garden and then the whole of human history is a waste of time and we return to a garden. But actually, the Bible story is, is we start in a garden and we finish in a garden city because the whole of history has not been a waste of time because actually human civilization is something that God wanted, something that God, God planned and ordained. In fact, um, theologically, it's interesting that um, they call, theologians call human civilization the third act in creation, creatio tertia, creatio tertia the third act in creation. And um, so you see in Revelation this idea, so you see the kings of the earth bringing the splendors and the wonders of the earth into the city. So I think what that, 
is saying is, is it's not like, so some environmental activists would say, you know, the earth will be a lot better without humans. We're the problem, get rid of us, turn to total wilderness, not even a garden. But actually the biblical story would say, no, you know, um, human civilization is this tremendous mix of good and bad, isn't it? And what happens when God returns is, is the evil is burnt up but a, like a refining fire to leave the good and what is worthy. And so that's why it's, that's why it's a city and uh, with precious things. And as I said, the splendor, the kings bring the splendors of the earth, you know, to, to, um, in praise of God. So I think that, you know, that's the story. But it's very much, it's, it's, a, it's a garden, you know, it's a garden city. And it's, it's um, yeah, there's the water of life and the trees and... Um, um, yeah, and elsewhere you see in, I think, you know, the animals as um, Edward Hicks has in his, his picture. Great. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. after now Megan we we're both learning to you know love human beings actually in the Yeah. Yes. Ask God actually yeah. um thought thought want to purposely treat each other, but we're also learning to love yeah. the creation that yes. that God yeah. has created yeah. wonderfully and and mysteriously, you know. Yeah. And art and all of these things. So so it's that we're in the that process of learning yeah. that God loves. That's right, yeah, yeah, and loving the arts as well, you know, loving the arts and um, loving sciences because there's all um, part of God's creation and new creation. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I've been thinking quite a lot, reading a lot about em environmentalism or ecology and um, um, and I think I'm changing, moving more in that direction. But I was, I was thinking as, you know, um, it's very easy, it? and especially for young people to get more involved in just sort of big global issues, which are important. But I, I think one key to it is, is to start by just loving the place where you are, you know, and looking around you and seeing what is there. You know, I've, um, those of you who know me well, know that I've, I've started to love house martins particularly because they nest right outside our bedroom window and um, um, and uh, I probably know more about house martins than, than, than uh, maybe anybody in the room at the moment because I, I read about them a lot and there's, um, there's not that much that people know about them actually because they still don't know where they go in the, in the winter time. Um, but um, but uh, that's really been a doorway for me through loving house martins to, um, and, and loving just because they nest and wondering about them to loving the, you know, God's creation in a, in a wider sense. And so I, I would say that, yeah, that is a key. I think begin by loving the creation where you are and, and seeing it really around you. 
And um, you, what you said reminded me, there's, there's a bit in, that I, in the introduction of the book where I said, um, I think this is the right way around. I said, it's not so much that heaven will be full of things we love from this world, but rather that we love things in this world because they are the things of heaven. And um, yeah, so I think that's, that's the right way around. Yeah, great. Um, the only thing I was going to say is that I think one of the problems with understanding heaven mm -hmm. and understanding creation mm -hmm. and what God actually wanted to create with the world and with mm -hmm. human beings mm -hmm. um, is because we have never really spent time understanding the first book of Genesis. Right, yes. About creation and what God was trying to mm. Mm. create there. Mm. Mm. There was a perfect world where you mm. had human beings mm -hmm. who related to one another, who had all these gifts, mm -hmm. and but there was no sin. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And if we look around in the world, we see what happens when we forget God and yeah. do our own thing. Yeah. You know, it, it's but what Revelation has shown us is it's a very physical, real world. Yes, yeah, there absolutely. There are going to be so many people there, mm -hmm. but it's going to be so big. Yes. Yeah. Because we, we won't get old. No, no. You know, we'll all be young and beautiful. <laughs> <like them. laughs> this is when I'm going to be thin. <laughs> um, yeah. But... We've never been taught in the church yeah, the yeah. wonder yeah. of what a real heaven and earth mm. it's, is. It's heaven and earth. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're learning about the universe and all the planets and everything else. Mm. <coughs> and we'll spend a little, you know, our time wondering at that, but wondering at music mm. and mm. writing and... and yeah. Well, I think that one of the problems is uh, you see a lot of people's theology starts with sin and the cross um, rather than starting with creation. And this, this is a lot of, you know, what, what um, a lot of theologians actually, ones that are writing about environment or these are, you know, um, some of the, actually Lutherans often writing about that, that we need to recapture a strong theology of creation. Mm. Um, because, yeah, otherwise we, we just start with the fall. And then we become like, um, in a way, like the dualists where, you know, the material world is just bad and we're trying to escape it. But when we see, you know, take the first chapters of Genesis seriously, yeah, we see, wow, this is, this is really wonderful. And it's incredible. It's actually very unlike almost all other worldviews, you know, that, that the material is good. And we are a part of it, and we're given responsibility and creativity by God to make more of His world and to make in in kind of yeah in His image, and um, so it's a yeah it's a wonderful wonderful worldview yeah great. Oh, cool. That is. That is a good question. I, I don't know. I, um, Celtic, the question was, do I think Celtic Christianity captures the kind of the imminence in nature or the, or the God's presence in nature more than, I, I don't know. I've, um, 
Marin and I recently walked um, St Oswald's Way in Northumberland and ended up on Holy Island, which excited me to learn more about Celtic Christianity or or you might say, Kel- you know, the Christianity that was in the British Isles before, uh, say, yeah, Roman, Roman Catholic Christianity came. So that, it's quite early, isn't it? Because that would be you know, the 7th century when um, Northumbria and places like that became, came under the Roman church. But I, I don't know. I'd like to read more about it. I mean, there's, I don't think there's a huge amount written that survives in, 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 in a systematic way. But... Um, I don't know if is anybody an expert on Celtic Christianity, proper Celtic Christianity, on, as opposed to the stone crosses. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's part of the pagan yeah. Yeah. Part of it, or yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I did. I did see a book in a second-hand bookshop, which is called uh, Celtic Christianity and Nature. And I picked it up and went to buy it, but it was £20 secondhand, so I, I didn't buy it. But I should, maybe I should have bought it. Yeah, Peter, yeah. I mean, we have a common idea, don't we, of Celtic Christianity as being more in touch with nature. And it, it may have been, and that may have had like a positive and a negative side as well, you know, of, of perhaps, um, you know, uh, I, but I don't know enough about it. And I mean, you do get, obviously within the Roman church, you do get then important um, saints having, you know, much stronger connection with nature. For example, um, St. Francis, um, and, and it's fascinating that um, there's this paper by a famous article by Lynn White. Is, it, is that her name, Lynn White? Is his name? It's a him, isn't it? Lynn White, who writes this article criticizing Christianity as being um, the Creation Commission as being the reason why um, people have neglected um, to care for the environment. But at the end of the article, he actually talks about then St. Francis as a hero and says it would be much better if, you know, we went back to St. Francis, the end of the paper. But um, so there is that, you know, and there, there are strong strands, I think. But I, I would say, like, you know, evangelicalism, in some ways, it's been quite weak um, because it's sort of evangelicalism has tended to focus, you know, something like on the salvation of the soul, for heaven, and that's a sort of, I, I call that a neoplatonic reduction of the gospel. You know, the gospel of Jesus isn't about, I say, it's not about saving souls for heaven. Jesus is saving everything in heaven on earth, you know, to bring it together under Christ. Um, so, yeah. Oh, just lots to of comment questions. on that, yeah, I mean, there okay. is a, um, a reform tradition. I mean, I yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. Yes. Uh, 
Westminster Confession, for example, if you want. Hmm. You're right. The existence of creation as, as meaning, as pointing towards uh, yes, yeah, 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 our, yeah. Uh, our attention towards yeah. the creator and praising the creator. And there's a, a lot, a of, lot of it. Yes, and you, I know, um, you point out as well, don't you? Um, William Wilberforce as well, founding, didn't he, the RSPCA or the, or the precursor of that Royal Society, yeah, for the prevention of cruelty to animals as well as part of his evangelical witness yeah yeah, yeah. yes so it's interesting isn't it how that's something that we've lost in some way yeah yeah more recently yeah do you, yes do you, yeah Yeah, we really caught. I, I was reading recently that you know the words that it uses when it, um, in 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 Genesis two when God you know it says He put Adam and Eve in the garden to to care for it and, and protect it, but the the actual words mean in the Hebrew more like to serve it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that to serve it and protect it, mm-hmm. so to protect the boundaries of it, but also to serve it. So we're in a really humble position before creation. And um, yeah, I, I do think that every Christian has a duty to care for creation because that's, you know, that's why God put us in this world. Um, and um, we should be very concerned about all the things we read about disappearance of species and, um, you know, climate change and those kind of things. And I think we should all be yeah, it should all be something that's on our heart to pray about, you know, what is our role in that? It may be something small and local. It may just mean that we do recycle well and, you know, things like that. It, it, but it can have wider cases. But it would be wonderful. I, mean, I was just reading a book and written, someone talking in the 1950s, a theologian, and just saying how, you know, the church, this, he's saying that it should be at the forefront of what's happening, you know, environmentally rather than lagging behind so um yeah I, I i would stick my neck out that far and say it should be something that's on all our hearts definitely and makes us mourn you know that the world is is the way it is yeah thanks you should probably okay yeah, yeah probably fine. finish William, William. William. yeah William. yeah Yes, yeah. Sorry, God doesn't name anything. Yeah. Yeah. 
To toil, yeah, yeah. Toil, right, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Do you, are you thinking modern technologies yeah. are often a way of avoiding? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, you know, yeah, God does, God names the macro reality, uh, you know, the day and the night, um, the, the land and the sea. But then he does invite humanity to name you know, the micro-reality, if you like, or, or, and, to, and to bring things into being through their naming, which is, which is you know, it's, it's a dignity of human language that God gives us. Um, yeah, and I think after the fall, it's interesting how, like, something that happens, actually, that is a, within the human heart disturbs, doesn't it, the whole of, the whole of creation. And I, I, I see those verses as, it, you know, we still do the same work that we w were going to be doing, but it now becomes frustrating and burdensome toil rather than perhaps joy and, um, uh, and meaningful. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I yeah, the role of technologies, that's a big question, but often it is, isn't it, to try and make life simpler, but all technology often has a side that we don't see, doesn't it, or, or do we don't foresee uh, very much so, yeah. Good. Also, I see the remit of the talk in kind of expanding our imagination across all yes. yeah. of creation. So he talks about creation in a natural world yeah. and caring for it. So that's I think one of the things that was provocative about this for me was thinking, you know, what are the what are the dimensions of reality that I maybe don't see and dwell upon and kind of imagine as different? Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even, or what, what does it mean as a Christian to go into environmental movement and, and imagine the past slightly differently. You know, what does it mean to bring mm. into a highly mm. relational dynamic as you think of the past yes. and how to tone yeah. humanity as a fixed problem as you think of what does it mean that mm. we should be in relationship with that world. Yeah. But also that yeah. there are so many other dimensions, all the photos of yes, yeah, yeah. nature. No, we talked a lot about nature, but yeah, but it's the transformation. It's, it's, I use a lot the verses in Ephesians where Ephesians 9 and 10, where Paul says, you know, um, that God has revealed his will, which is through Christ to bring everything in heaven and on earth under Christ, to bring everything. And so that, yeah, not just in sense the natural will, but everything that would be music and art and science and psychology and sociology and architecture and I was reading a book recently. It described town planning as being um, a, a divine science. <laughs> I like that idea. You know, you could call anything a divine science. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Is we're supposed to bring the meaningfulness and the creativity and the love and the relationality of the kingdom of heaven into all areas of life. Yeah. So education, um, child rearing, being a mum or dad at home. You know, every everything, yeah. Uh, street cleaning, you know, as picking up litter is a divine vocation. You know, there's I've, see, I've read studies where when if people in inner city areas pick up litter, the crime rates go down in those areas. Just 
you know, people responding to a better environment, there's less crime. So, you know, there's, there's incredible ways that we can, um, as well as, of course, you know, telling people about Jesus Christ. That is a part of it, too, because people need to know the wonderful God who's offering us relationships. So. Yeah, great. Thank you, Jeff. We should stop. Yeah. Good. Thank you.